1982, Eddie Murphy was a huge success on Saturday Night Live, but hadn't made the jump to the silver screen. That changed with 48 Hours, a gritty, violent, and misogynistic R-rated action movie that just may have created the buddy cop genre without any buddy cops. It was a weird choice for a comic, but somehow audiences loved it. Touching on issues of race and police work, 48 Hours takes a dose of In the Heat of the Night, mixes it with Dirty Harry, and shakes it with every no-name, recognizable face in early 80s Hollywood. It's like the ancestor that gave rise to Beverly Hills Cop and Lethal Weapon without really being either thing. But the stars, Murphy and Nick Nolte made this a hit, so Toasting the Classics is going back to the days of the obligate R movie to see what all the hype was about. Mix up a black Russian and join us for episode 78 of Toasting the Classics, 48 Hours. Hey, welcome to Toasting the Classics, the podcast where we take something people call a classic and we discuss it, drink something that's been inspired by the classic, and then we decide if it deserves to be a classic. I've got uh, the returning champions from the Guns of Navarone podcast. My name's Dave MacArthur. Introduce yourself, guys. Uh, my name is Chris Gregg. And Bill Hodges. We're going to do a little buddy cop podcast here with three buddies. We're doing a movie. What are we doing? Who wants to announce what we're handling this week? The 1982 classic 48 Hours. 48 hours. Awesome. Did anybody else rent this film from Amazon and have it tell you that you had 48 hours to watch 48 hours? Yes, I loved it. Okay, I like that. That was. Did anybody else make the mistake of watching Beverly Hills Cop? No. Yes. No? Okay. It, only because it came on right after 48 hours. 48 hours. It did. It did. It was autoplay. And, right. Yeah. So, Chris, you can feel a lot better. You're not the only person to make that mistake because... This episode of the podcast was originally intended to be Beverly Hills Cop, which I have never seen. And Chris sent us a text message the next day. How far into the movie were you? I was about halfway. Yeah, halfway. about halfway through. <laughs> about 24 hours, about 24 hours into 48 hours. When he sent us a message, he said, hey, 48 hours is pretty good. And I was thinking, did I mess that up? Uh-oh. Okay. <laughs> so... I mean, it's oh, that's that's an insight into how my brain works. It's just I, I thought, OK, Eddie Murphy cop movie from the 80s. Yeah, I mean, that's not I mean, that there's two years between the films. They're both huge blockbuster hits with a very early Eddie Murphy at the top of I don't know if he's at the top of his game, but he's coming out swinging in his career. I've never seen either one of them. So to me, they're the same movie. They're very different movies. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That actually is getting into my biggest surprise because that's going to have to do with the nature of this film is, is what my biggest surprise is going to be because I was completely caught off guard by what this movie was like. Uh, it started out with the Western, which I wasn't expecting. Uh, yeah, the horses. I'm like, wait a minute. Yeah. Did we click on the wrong movie again? Is this, is there a cowboy movie called 48 hours? Um, I double checked that as well. What would like the, the horses come up and the, the, the truck comes over the horizon. It's like this the farm equipment going down the train tracks. Prominently yep. featured Native American, although that was actually part of the movie, as it turns out. He's so, in many of this director's movies. He is. Well, it's the producer, if I'm not mistaken. It's oh, really? The, oh. It's, um, I can't remember his name. I didn't write it down. But uh, the, this guy's the producer of Die Hard and uh, Predator, Predator 2. A couple of other movies that I'm forgetting off the top of my head, but a lot of pretty successful movies. Like a couple. We're skipping way ahead here, but that, that actor yeah. is also in Predator. Yeah. And dies in the same way in both movies. Gigantic knife, creepy laugh, shot in the chest. Yeah. <laughs> Although I don't, we don't actually same see name. him die in Predator. No, we um, see his kind of same. We see name. him dead. We see the the moment that he goes to to fight face off against the Predator on the log bridge, and then he's just dead. 
the the actor whose name is Sonny Landham plays mm-hmm. uh, Billy. He's Bear. Billy in both movies. Billy Bear in Forty Eight Hours, and he plays Billy in Predator. He That's right. directs his own film later in his career, calling it Billy Lone Bear. Okay, Billy Bear, Billy Lone Bear, and Billy. Okay. As a matter of fact, in the opening scene, we get the first of what are many, many racial slurs in the movie directed at. And by the way, I would like to suggest a drinking game with this film, which Ooh. is whenever there's a racial slur you drink. I definitely think that's uh, that would get you a little tipsy. Maybe when uh, Eddie Murphy does his laugh. That's not, not going to add a lot in this particular movie. I haven't seen Cop yet, but I think he does it more in Beverly Hills. Cop. Oh, he's doing it constantly in Cop. Yeah, okay. This, this right. is actually his first movie. This is his first film. That's right. Yeah, he was basically a huge star on SNL doing Gumby and uh, Buckwheat. Real, oh, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, which is not yeah. called Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. It's called something else. But I think that was the funniest of the three, personally. But I didn't. Wa- I didn't actually watch SNL back in those days. I've only seen like replays of the early SNL days. So, does anybody want to attempt a synopsis? of this movie shouldn't we first tell what we're drinking so we went with what do we go with bill we went with the black russian uh why that seems random there's no russians in this film no it's because the uh the the a bartender one of the at the, at this bar bill why don't you tell us what about the drink what, what's going into this drink so they go so you know it's a really straightforward drink um it is just vodka and a little bit of kalua pour it over ice about uh two to one on the vodka to kalua ratio and uh it goes down pretty well i do recommend putting it over ice which unfortunately i uh i don't have any at home right now i don't have any ice you know my ice maker just does not work and the landlord does not consider it to be uh, a critical a critical piece of uh, equipment in the house so i haven't been able to get the ice maker fixed yeah, you know, I've got an ice tray, and I had had some, well, I thought I had put some water into it to make ice, came back, and the water started uh, leaking out of the ice tray. So I uh, was without ice. But, uh, you mean like a twist tray? You just went with an old school, like, meat? Oh, like meat the classic, you know, log. you just put the ice tray in the in the freezer and wait a day or so, and you have ice. Yeah, yeah, I like those. Those are good. Yeah, but apparently mine cracked, and all the water... Did not stay frozen. I've got ice. I'd say it does add to the drink. I, I made some clear ice and crushed it. But that is one really funny thing about this movie. Every third actor is someone you've seen in 15 other things. 100%. 100%. I, I don't know if it's supposed to be Nick Nolte's partner, but the cop with the sort of missing chin yeah. is the dude from Blade Runner who is like the other replicant that, that takes the turtle test and, and fails it right before uh, right before Harrison Ford. And I think spoiler he, alert for for uh, 48 hours, sorry, another 48 hours. He's he's the bad guy in that. They bring that back guy is? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I don't know. Some of the actors, a lot of them are just people that I recognize. The main bad guy, the main villain is in a whole bunch of stuff and I could not I looked at his at his at his IMDb, it was just a bunch of um Oh no, no, he's Dexter's dad. Bits. Yeah, that's true. That's But I would say that goes into character actors, you know. That's that's like yeah, you're right. That's true. Yes, that's but that's what thing. you recognize him from. Yeah, that's probably the thing I read. But he, but he's also in a million other things, and um, the girlfriend is in a, a thousand things all over TV and like bit parts in movies. The one sort of middle bad guy, Luther, is David Patrick Kelly, who was in the Warriors. The actor that plays Gantz was in the Warriors as well. Uh, James Redmore, Eddie Murphy's girl 
that he picks up in the bar at the end became a regular on uh, Miami Vice. Olivia That's Brown? Mike Armentrout from Breaking Bad has yes. a as a cop. <laughs> that was kind of uh, Yeah, Jonathan, Jonathan Banks. Banks. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you know, he's also in Gremlins, by the way. I thought that, that was pretty rare. I saw Gremlins with the kids a year or two ago, and I was like, oh, that's Mike from Breaking Bad. That's very, I guess he was a cop. I guess he somehow probably was a cop in his life. So he plays cops and everything. He did that with great success through the 80s. Uh, so did you guys use Kahlua? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I did get an off brand uh, coffee liqueur that was about half the price of Kahlua, and I think tastes just as good. But the guy at the liquor store is real friendly, and he he like suggested it to me. He said this tastes just as good, and it's it's half the price. But it's all alcohol. There's nothing. I I thought maybe there was something else in a black Russian other than alcohol because I think a white Russian has half is, multi is multiple ingredients, right? It's yeah, it's the same thing with with half and half. Okay, so oh, so it's got the it's got the Kahlua, it's got vodka, and then half and half. Yeah, you just pour the half and half on top and let it sort of filter in. Okay, so a white Russian is a cocktail because if I'm not mistaken, a cocktail has three ingredients, and this is a highball because that just has two alcoholic ingredients or two ingredients. I think I'm not sure, but anyway, I'm drinking mine out of an old fashioned glass, as was recommended by the professionals uh, on Google. Goodness. That looks like a small wine glass that you, you it, have there. And it's a, like, like a stemless glass. wine glass, yeah. And Chris has a, either an old-fashioned glass or what's the other word for that kind that has a little extra glass at the bottom? Is that is that an old-fashioned glass? or? Yeah, it's, it's a straight-up old-fashioned glass. Okay. All right. Cool. Well, then, yeah, you and I are using the same thing. So um, let's try the synopsis out. And I have an idea. How about, Bill, start. You're at the top of the Zoom. And the first time you say, um, or get distracted, I take the synopsis from right where you were. And then the first time I say, um, or get distraction, distracted, Chris takes it from where I am, okay? And we'll try to get through the synopsis in, you know, try to hit all the high points. You don't have to get everything. We don't have to name everybody that's in the film. Although we've already named everybody who's in the film because we're being human at IMDb right now. But So, Bill, go ahead. Take it from the top. What ha what happens in the uh, the film 48 hours? 48 hours. Film. It's not called 48 hours. It's yes, called it's 48 H -R HRS period. And Wikipedia is very clear to set out that that is pronounced 48 hours. That it is, in fact, 48 hours, not 48 it is. Years. Yes, it's not pronounced 48 hours or, or something. I don't know what other possible pronunciation we could come up with. But I don't, I don't know that I ever would have thought to make that. Also, I noticed on the poster that Eddie Murphy's giving the finger in the poster. Is that <laughs> is that common on a movie poster? For just to get flipping the bird, like right at the... Oh, man. So this was... 82 and yeah it's got to be pretty um out there for 82 right but okay fun question what do you guys think the movie was rated at must have been ours a lot of f-bombs and stuff all through the film right pretty pretty good violence well there was no such thing as pg-13 in 1982 right so it couldn't be pg-13 i would say i would say r yeah definitely is that not as correct far as i can tell it was uh this film was not yet rated they just uh -huh. never it yeah, says R on IMDb. Interesting. Okay, but that could have been that, that could that rating could have been given. It does say R on IMDb, but that ne wasn't necessarily in the original film. It, it says, says R. R on the poster. Yeah, so, okay. I mean that seems appropriate to me. I think this was an era where you would take a movie and you would say to yourself that there's a segment of the of the movie going populace that wants to see an R-rated movie, and so you make sure the movie fits that by having a woman take off her shirt at some point. A little bit of violence that seems more than was necessary for this kind of movie, if I'm being honest. It's like a little bloodier than I really needed in this vehicle. 
Also, just some F-bombs that come out of nowhere. But anyway, we can talk about all that later. But this was, I think this was an era of the gratuitous rated R movie. Like, where It's funny you say that because the, uh, the studio gave the director a lot of pushback and actually told him uh-huh. he would never work for Paramount again. And then it went on to become this. Right. I, I, read, I think I read the same thing that Chris did with, uh, it was Michael Eisner, I think, for, for Paramount. And he said that um, the movie, that the violence was, de- well, first of all, he said it wasn't that funny. And he said that the violence was detracting from it being particularly funny. And I'm not going to lie. I probably would have signed on to those notes. I would have been like, I totally agree with that. Yeah. I'm not laughing a lot in this movie. And this is a weird amount of blood and violence for something that's supposed to be funny. But anyway, I'm not going to get into it's really a comedy. I don't, I I mean, think so. It has comedic elements to it. It's just an action drama. And IMDb lists it as an action comedy crime film, which I I agree with you guys. I mean, Eddie Murphy is funny, and I think they got funny comedy by bringing in Eddie Murphy from SNL to be in a crime action flick with Nick Nolte. I usually have this theory where I think that you have to make sure to have your audience get what they expected when they go into the movie theater. If you cast Eddie Murphy... And in his first role in a film, and he's been on SNL, it better be funny or people are going to be, they're, you're going to get the wrong audience sitting there and they're going to be angry. And I don't think that applies in this case at all, because I, I think this movie was not what people would have expected, and yet it was hugely successful. I mean, it had some comedic moments. I mean, I think that Nick Nolte... Yeah, 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 there were some good bits. That were and Eddie Murphy's, bits. their ability to interact with each, with each other had some good comedic elements. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, and also something to remember as three people watching it. Uh, none of us has seen this before, right? No. I've seen it before. Oh, you have? Okay. And but, I, I think I actually went and saw another 48 hours in the theater. I, okay. I have a weird relationship with this movie because this is the first time I've seen it, but I've actually also watched an hour-long documentary on it. <laughs> oh, interesting. <laughs> Anyway, to get my synopsis in, a hard-nosed cop reluctantly teams up with a wise crack. Don't read, is this your writing? Did you write this, or is this you're just writing what it, reading what it says on on IMDb? <laughs> hard-nosed cop sounds like that doesn't sound like Bill to me. So this is a movie. It's Eddie Murphy's first film, and he has a hard-boiled police officer going on a quest to find some really tough criminals, murderous. Uh, convicts that have been. Oh, I think I just said um. I don't even think we got into the movie opener, which no begins in a western. It's a prison breakout where Billy and James Renmar. James Renmar is on a prison gang, and Billy comes driving along, and the guards take Askins at that, and they have this uh, weird wrestling match in the mud that results in them both drawing guns and shooting the guards and driving away into the into the sunset. Come to find out that the two of them have broken out. Uh, They are trying to recover a large amount of stolen money, and they kill one of the gang members in a public park. Right. Uh, They arrange for some entertainment with some ladies. It flashes over to Nick Nolte, who is a real dirtbag in this movie, as he leaves his girlfriend's house, goes into the station, and... Let's put a pin in the question of whether he's a a dirtbag. Let's talk about that a little bit later, but go ahead. Okay, absolutely. I'd love to, because he is a terrible cop. (laughs) Uh, And this is how Eddie Murphy gets into the movie, because Eddie Murphy is another member of this gang. We get into the prison, and we find out that Eddie Murphy, he gets his intro singing Roxanne, which is hugely famous. Yeah. Do you know I had a Mandela memory of him singing that song in Trading Places when he's in the cart at the beginning? 
and yeah. he's just kind of going along in a little cart. I could have sworn. Is he maybe singing King of Pain, though, in that movie? Is that what I'm remembering? I think he's singing King of Pain in that one. It's entirely possible. No, no that's not even right. He sings King of Pain in one of his stand-up specials where he says he's going to be the first black astronaut. And he's like, there's a little black spot on the sun today. That's it's a total Mandela moment. I've got m- multiple different Eddie Murphy things mixed up with each other. And- does he do a lot of singing in his movies traditionally? I don't know. It's not something I've noticed. Okay, does anybody else remember the song Party All the Time? Yes. As in, my girl wants to party all the time. That's Eddie Murphy. Whoa. Eddie Murphy sings that song. That's crazy. Eddie Murphy sung that song and performed it. And it's it's it, I listened to it while I was... And I, I remember that song completely. I had no idea of that fact. Yeah. I, I didn't know that either. That's that's yeah. that's blown my mind. One of the other random pieces of trivia uh, on this movie relates to music as well. Uh, you know, at the end when they're singing, the boys are back in town. Uh-huh. That band is Eddie Murphy's warm-up group for his, uh, or was for his performance. Uh, for, for when he was- For stand-up? Yeah, for stand-up. Oh, and okay. that song didn't make it on the CD or the record for this movie. Okay. And then they used it as the promotional promo for another 48 hours. Uh-huh. And it also didn't make it on the CD for that one, that one either. <laughs> that song was not available on CD until 2000. Which song comes first? The song, The Boys Are Back in Town, that I know, or that The Boys Are Back in Town? It'd be the, it'd be the one that I know. It was like the Eagles or somebody, right? I assume so. I, I guess it was a cover. Maybe that's why they didn't put it on the on It CD. doesn't sound like it. Is that why there's the either. reference to Eddie Murphy saying, I don't like the Eagles? No, that that's Big Lebowski. That's, that's the big Lebowski, which I watched right after. You're, you're Mandeling the white Russian with the black Russian. And so I think the rules were um, if you get sidetracked. Oh, you said um. Yeah, but if you get sidetracked, you also lose movie recap privileges. And I think I, think I definitely got sidetracked. So. Well, you didn't get sidetracked. You, you got sidetracked by me. Passive voice, you got sidetracked. You, you didn't just wander off the topic for no reason. You, I kind of actively mine. went into it there with All the right, fine. I guess you bit you bit it you bit it hook line and sinker so now it's Bill's turn to continue. So I think we got we... up to the murder of uh, the Asian American member of the gang in the park. Uh Mike from Breaking Bad and his partner are both shot at the hotel with the professional uh, sex right. workers. Professional sex workers, right? Yes. As opposed uh, to am- I guess you could I guess you could be an amateur so but all right. I am. Certainly, I've never been paid for it. That's just because nobody ever pays you, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> That's just because everyone's always like, "No, yes, man, I'm not." Yes, I have that. a growth mindset here, Dave. So this, and this is where Nick Nolte, for some, for whatever reason. I mean, do you think that if we bat around, if we get back to the number one guy, do we just quit on the synopsis? Do we just say the synopsis isn't happening? Maybe. I mean, well, so Nick, so Nick Nolte is there. He's like about uh-huh. to win with the other two cops to try to see what's going on in this hotel room and for whatever reason they're like oh no we don't want you we're scared of you coming in here with us and then they both get blown away with nick nolte's gun can either of you do a passing a passable nick nolte impression because he has a great voice no it it really is one of the classic voices like he's actually a really really well-respected actor and has this i don't it's not like a stellar list of credits but it's it's a lot of really big stuff and some academy award nominations and stuff but he's always he's always growling like this and uh, exactly and you know you know what i forgot like he's, like he's smoked a pack a, a day for like 20 years but you know Did one you of his most, the world's sexiest man 
Yes, I looked. I saw that. I cannot believe, and that was ten years after this movie. That was nineteen ninety-two. Ninety-two. It was fifty did you see, something. Did, did you see his quote when he was told he was the world's sexiest man? Oh, Are you sure you got the right guy? Uh, my vote would have been for Walter Cronkite. That's right. Yeah, yeah, Walter Cronkite. Yeah, that's was he even alive in nineteen ninety-two? Maybe. Okay. But um, did you guys forget the best, the most identifiable line ever said by Nick Nolte? Probably. Was it in that, this with that? With that gravelly voice, it's not in this movie. It's I have spoken. Oh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I took. I remember I saw the first episode of Mandalorian. I was like, "Who is that? Who is that voice?" And I was like, "Is that yeah. Nick Nolte?" Hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah, got the uh, series kicked off. Bill, you got us through the first shootout, which is very bloody, very bloody shootout at the beginning when, when uh, Nick Nolte at all go to arrest whatever the heck his name is, Gans. The gunplay in this movie is hilariously poor at moments because they're they're almost always using six shot revolvers, and invariably yes. in every scene where Billy is shooting at someone, he shoots at least eight to ten times without reloading. They all do. So does Nolte. So well, Nick Nolte does actually. He's using the revolver in the beginning, and he actually has a scene where he's taking shells out of his pocket and reloading it. And then the rest of the movie, he has an automatic. With Renmar, with with Gantz, is they say in this particular shootout he had a speed loader and they they talk about it at the end which uh -huh. is you know a, a little preloaded six thing where you're supposed to be able to pull it out and put it back in and just reload quickly i've heard, of it. Actually I've show heard of it i've never actually seen what it looks like they do, yeah. they do. but he what lost it but he lost it in the first shootout so he doesn't have it as an excuse for the other two this movie kind of dabbles in different genres, right? And doesn't quite nail all of them, but they also, it also comes together pretty well into a, into a cohesive whole, strangely enough, I thought, but yeah, it's kind of like, isn't that funny and doesn't really nail the action, but is kind of doing both. And then there's sort of a romance plot that isn't really a romance plot. Well, which romance plot are you talking about? Okay. Well, I don't even want to talk about Eddie Murphy's with that girl. I wanted to slap him for the way he was talking to that girl. That was annoying the, the heck out of me. Like, I, yeah. If I was in a bar and I heard somebody talking to a girl that way, I'd be like, what is the matter with you? Was that supposed to be okay? Was I supposed to not hate that character for talking like, I mean, I'm not even going to repeat the, the things he was saying to this, to this lady, but, and then she's like, oh yeah, that sounds great. I'm like, what is the matter? What? And Eddie Murphy is just supposed to be a, like a crappy grifter in this movie, I guess. And, you know, he gets away with stuff. All He's always trying to get away with stuff. Pretty much. Yeah, that's true. He's kind I mean, of, he, he, had a, he had a great suit. He did have yeah. a great suit, apparently. I don't know. It just looked like a suit to me. I wouldn't know. Do you want to talk about whether or not Nick Nolte's character was a good guy? What's What's sure. everybody's take on that? I don't think anyone in this movie is a good guy. Okay. I really thought, I mean, okay, Eddie Murphy's character is a criminal, but I thought the part that I was like, he's a bad dude, was the way he was talking to that woman. I was like, this sure. is not a nice guy. This is a bad how, guy. How about when uh, Nick Nolte gets at least two cops killed in the movie? Oh, Nick Nolte, 100%. There's a lot of things. He, he, Well, he gets the guys killed. I don't know if he got them killed, but he was firing at the bad guys through a crowd in the subway yes. station. And like firing around hostages constantly. So, and I'm like, that's a bad cop. Like that, I don't know if it necessarily makes you a bad person, but you're we kind of saw, an incompetent you know, police officer. Mortless breaking and entering multiple times. We, we saw him just not give a crap about his girlfriend at all. You saw him uh, drinking on the job constantly throughout the movie from his flat. Well, but that could be somebody with a problem. We might not want to judge him. Maybe he's got an alcohol problem, but that doesn't make him a bad person. It's but certainly yeah, makes bad, bad cop. cop. Bad cop. Yeah, it makes you a very bad cop. 
I don't want to sound too 2023 here, but just absolutely casual racism that just drips off this dude is, I think, the one of the most reprehensible things. And then oh, I was he wondering, apologized for it. He, well, he apologizes for it, but he doesn't just apologize. Florida. He's not. He doesn't just say sorry. He says he implies that it's a part of his act to try to keep the guy down. And that, to me, if it's true, which I don't think it is, by the way, I don't think that's true. And, I think and the movie Eddie, wants you to believe it's true. No, yeah. I don't think so because Eddie Murphy calls him out on it, and and he's like, "No, it wasn't true the whole time." He's just kind of admitting, "No, I'm actually kind of racist." But it would be understandable to me if a police officer who had to interact with somebody who's like a convict or something just had to use whatever tool at his disposal to put that guy down to keep him. That kind of would, if it was a rational calculation, if you know what I mean, that would actually make some sense to me. But I think this guy's just no good although that's just bad writing or was that the character no i don't think so i think i think there's a little bit of a i think there's i think there's some thought going into that one really interesting thing i read is that a lot of the interaction between the two of them was not scripted it sounded like eddie murphy contributed quite a bit he changed the name of the character he came up with some things about the kid I, i think everybody was kind of adding things on the fly that made it feel a lot more realistic but the dialogue, I think that conversation they have about the racist language shows us what the writer wanted us to think about with those choices. I think um, the movie is much less than the sum of its parts without that conversation. Yeah, is this I, I, the first black, white, and, and I, I know you called it a buddy movie at the beginning, which the director takes offense to, but we'll go with it for now. Is this the first black, white buddy movie, cop movie? No, we- because Richard Pryor and Gene Wilder had been doing it before that. In, um, okay. They weren't cops in those, right, though? No, they weren't police. This is supposedly the not just the first black-white, but the first buddy cop movie, which, which is- I don't have a degree in film to, to have an argument. I don't know, but I saw that quote, and I was thinking, that can't be right. It's got to have been. How could the, there not have been buddy cop movies through history? But, the director takes offense to that because he's constantly yeah. pointing out that Eddie Murphy is not a cop. So Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. I wanted to talk about this a little bit as we got towards the end, but there's a bit towards the end where Nick Nolte, they have a conversation with the police chief, right? And by the way, this conversation about racist language, because the police chief, black dude, calls Eddie Murphy the N-word and then yeah. explains why he chose to call him the N-word. And so to me, the characters are voicing discussions of why we choose to use racist language. And I think it's I think that I think that's intentional and part of the text of the film. I think it's in there. But anyway. They have that conversation, and then Nick Nolte goes into this explanation. He goes into an explanation of what a great guy Reggie is and how he's better than all the other cops. And then the two of them like have this discussion, which is pretty good. I like the actors in the discussion. But I'm thinking, I didn't see enough interaction between these guys to have earned that dynamic shift in the relationship. Did you guys, did I miss something or... I think the feeling is that they've been with each other for 24 hours already at that point, and they've uh-huh. they've had each other's backs. You know, Eddie Murphy stopped the guy and took his gun, and you know, you've had a lot of sniping with them, and they've they've earned some level of respect. I, I'm not sure it's totally earned, but they realize they need each other to get what they want, which is the money, okay. because the gang has that five hundred thousand dollars. That's Eddie Murphy has told him about that already. He wants the money, Eddie Murphy wants the money, they decide to work together to get it. In a sense, I think they're both kind of playing each other. You notice the the tone between them shifts after that too. Before that, when Nolte is feeling nice, he's he's calling him convict. And when he's not, it's right. you know, boy or watermelon. He never actually uses the N-word. 
He does. Yeah. Multi does? Yeah. yeah. Oh, Multi okay. does, yeah. I missed that somehow. Yeah. Because I was kind of thinking, you know, he says, like, you darker people, and he says watermelon or something, and then there's one time when he just goes ahead and drops the N-word. If I remember right, it's when they're having their fist fight. So it's Leading up to the fist fight, I think. Yeah, it's leading up to the fist fight, so it's the most intense moment, but still, he definitely uses it, and uh, that's a little bit hard for me to swallow in terms of judging somebody. But then I'm thinking, he says all this crap, and then he's got a couple of buddy cops, and his chief is black. Mm. Do they all talk that way around each other? Do they all? Does everybody say it to one another? Do the black cops say things like that to the white cops? Or I don't. I mean, know. again, I think I think this is the writers doing that intentionally when they go into. I think so. I think so. Uh, country bar. What is it? Trophies or something like that? I don't remember, but that's a good. Torches. That's the torches. Funniest. I think that's the funniest bit that Eddie Murphy does, by the way, in the whole Absolutely. movie. Absolutely. Which is, is where, which is where we got to the black Russian. That's right. We never explained that, by the way. Yeah, the bar- the bartender who is not Meatloaf uh, suggests that maybe <laughs> that maybe Eddie Murphy could drink a black Russian, um, and then Eddie Murphy does a little bit of his laugh, his famous laugh, and slaps the table, and he says, "Oh, because like I'm that's black. great." And then he throws a highball, shatters the mirror right, right behind him. Exactly. And, and goes on, goes into this diet trap. And right before that, right before going in there, they they had made this deal, right? Murphy is going to be able to coax the information that they need out of him with the badge because Nolte was like, well, it takes more than just a badge and a gun. Meanwhile, Nolte gave him no clues whatsoever that there are going to be Confederate flags all over the place and it's an all-white country hick bar. There's a, there's a ton of those in San Francisco, by the way. Yeah, right by the way, this redneck hardly bar. any of this film was actually shot in San Francisco. Yeah, some of it was in L.A. All yeah, of the 580 going from Richmond into the East Bay. but into- Oh, okay. So you mean not specifically in San Francisco, but in the Bay Area somewhere. Okay. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. Well, and most of, most of the film is actually shot in L.A. They're going into torches, and Eddie Murphy just rolls with it i thought i thought this was maybe the best part of the film i thought it's so. definitely eddie murphy's yeah. shining performance and it's yes. what made him a movie star yeah i think absolutely so. flips and just goes into like i'm a i'm a black cop and i can do whatever i want the reason why i think he shines in that scene so much is because essentially if you picture where he is he's surrounded by all this these hostile people and he's he's basically got the same stage presence as a comedian it's it's essentially a place for a for a stand-up comic who's used to dominating a room with his words and his body language and stuff and he's doing exactly that in that scene that's why that rings so true and looks it looks perfect it's a great scene it's, it's pretty funny delivery's perfect everything about it like but he, he's not funny in the scene too and it's uh, he's it's pretty what the part where he says i don't like white people and i hate rednecks and y'all are rednecks that's pretty funny i like that <laughs> that was probably the only part where i was like oh i actually kind of laughed out loud a little bit that was because otherwise did you guys laugh in this movie a little bit here and there i i enjoyed the part where they have their fist fight and they get back in the car and nick nolte just throws just one little punch at him. <laughs> i actually oh. laughed out loud at that that was holdcock's the guy that was terrible what's another sign he's just an awful human being yeah, yeah, but it, but it it rang true, right? He, he before they start to fight, he's like, "I fight dirty," and then they get in the car, and he just gets in one last little punch, you know. So I, I laughed because I think, and I think we've talked about this before. Clint and I did Blazing Saddles, uh, which I had seen but didn't really know terribly well. I hadn't seen it in years and years. It's pretty hard to laugh at anything that's more than like ten or fifteen years old. It's just a little bit of physical comedy could still be really funny because physical physical comedy, I think holds up over time but man like a lot of the other jokes are just 
you just like it is not funny anymore either it's been done so many times yeah. or the times have changed even the the timing just changes sometimes oh uh, yeah slower i think in the old days and now i think maybe things have passed me by and sometimes people talk a little too fast for me to laugh like i, I do like to hear the words of the joke one of the things i really like about this movie is the, like the the clever writing because you have that scene in the the white redneck bar but later in the movie it's counterposed when eddie murphy for reasons separates and calls nick nolte down to an, an all-black bar that's one of the scenes I actually laughed when he was calling Nick Nolte on the phone. He's like, yeah, I'm down here at this bar. It's yada, yada, yada. Yeah, I know you don't know where it is. Yeah. But you well, but the, and then Nolte comes back with that a little bit, too. And he's like, oh, he, the because the bartender at the at that second kind of jazzy, like, call it music hall, the bartender there is, tells Nolte, he's like, oh, you come in here often? He's like, are you kidding? This is my favorite place. This is a pretty successful film. In terms of building up the case for it potentially being a classic. And it ended up being the sixth biggest box office hit. It, I think it cost like $8 million, right? I mean, first of all, you got Eddie Murphy for nothing, I'm sure, because it was his first film, right? Do you know what a salary was? Okay, so Nick Nolte no, got... No, I don't. No, I don't, but I imagine it was a couple hundred thousand, maybe, something like that. But no. Nick Nolte got paid a million dollars. Okay. You want to guess Murphy's salary? A hundred thousand. Eddie Murphy got paid uh, $200,000 for the movie. Oh, that's what I said. That was my first yeah. guess. I went down. I went down because of the look on your face. Yeah. You, you did the taxi yeah. back. Years later, I think, when Another 48 Hours came out, Eddie Murphy was one of the top top billed actors sure. in the world. And he was sure. getting $12 million plus a percentage of the gross was his asking rate. Yeah, I can't remember what other actors we've talked about this before, but it would be hard to overstate how huge Eddie Murphy was in the 80s. And what a fall from grace he had in the early 90s. With a, he had a couple of stinkers of movies, like Pluto Nash, obviously, is the worst of them. I mean, what? There's 48 Hours, Beverly Hills Cop, Trading Places, and uh, Coming to America. Am I missing anything of the of the like pantheon of, of probably his greatest films, like the, bit, the really big ones? There's Golden Child. There's another 48 Hours. There's Boomerang. There's a couple of other successful movies, but not Boomerang. That's not what I meant to say. Bowfinger is what I meant to say. He's had three big flops, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. Norbit. Dr. Doolittle. No, no that's Dr. Doolittle was a huge commercial that's success. A, that's a huge. That was Nutty it? Professor, those were, those were gigantic. There's like 12 of those movies. Yeah, no. My kids love Dr. Doolittle. He's one of very few actors in Hollywood that have had the absolute bombs at the box office and still able to get work. Mm -hmm. yep. uh, but yeah, early in his career, he had a trajectory kind of like Chevy Chase where he, he couldn't do any wrong until he just kind of fell on his face. But, That's a really good comparison, actually, except the Chevy Chase never, never got back up off the mat. Never, never came back. Not in film. Though. He was on a very successful TV. He was on community, but that was a long time. That was a, like as an old guy. And also, I think he was horrible on that, wasn't he? Like, everybody hated him and everything. Like, he was still a complete yeah, jerk. Yeah, he famously didn't want to do more than one take, allegedly. And Joel McHale at the time was doing Community and Talk Soup. So you were, he was doing two TV shows at the same time. Right. Which is I have this kind of theory, and I don't think it's a theory at this point, but the movies, and not to sound like an old guy, but TV shows are better today. There's much better TV than there was in the 80s. Unquestionably. Yes. But the movies do not compare. 
either. It's hands down the movies were better. If you look at the list of 1982s, and this is just the top 10 box office movies. I'm not even talking about like other movies that came out that were great, like say Blade Runner, which did not make the top 10 of uh, of box office. Number one is E.T. There hasn't been a movie as good as E.T. in 10 years. Then the number two movie is Tootsie, Officer and a Gentleman, Rocky 3. Okay, the first one that really sucks is Porky's. <laughs> that's not a good movie, but that's then you got Star Trek Two came out that year. Poltergeist. I've never seen the best little whorehouse in Texas. I'm not sure I know exactly what that is. It's shockingly good. Uh, yeah, I've heard that. So that's kind of something I want to watch at some point. And then Annie was the number 10 movie of the year. So I mean, this is like really big films, most of which, except for, okay, you get Star Trek, Rocky, and Annie are not really original material. But this is the thing that differentiates the movies today is that yes. if you go to the movies today and you look at what's playing at the AMC on, on 84th Street right now, there's not a single original piece of IP there. Not one. There are very few. Uh, there are only, I think, four or five original IP movies coming out this year. And, yeah. and a lot of those are, are like The Killer or uh, the one about Oppenheimer that's coming out. Yeah. Uh, where the director has enough cachet to get it done. Right, it's a Christopher Nolan joint, you know, so everybody knows he's a popular director. It's a historical property, so it's like everybody, it's, you know, nobody just writes a new movie and puts out a new movie and takes a chance because it's too expensive. The distribution is so expensive. And I don't know that it's the distribution. I think it's the 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 studios are afraid of failure, and you know you have a backstop with existing IP and making sequels. Right. To, you just shove it through the system and not take that kind of risk. Yeah. Well, when I say distribution, I'm kind of everything about the movie business is so expensive that you just can't take a risk. You can't yeah. you can't be a movie studio in 2023 that's building a brand. They used to do it the way HBO does it. They used to HBO put out 10, 10 shows and they know a couple of them are going to be stinkers. But they're just like, we want to be HBO. We want to have a cut. We want to have great material so people will want to watch our products. I hate to be glib, but look what happened to HBO. HBO, what happened to HBO? Uh, I mean, all this, everybody who's streaming is money, if that's what you're talking about. But they is no longer HBO as of tomorrow. As of five days, they're no longer going to exist. They were bought. The HBO app is going away. It's all going to a different program. It's Max. Oh, no. I really, yeah. That's actually one of my favorite things to watch. They have a lot of really good stuff. Huh. It's brought out by Discovery, if you can imagine it. And uh, a lot of their shows have been canceled. And But I mean, pretty clearly, though, it's not because their content's not good. It's because the streaming thing, everything's being up completely upturned, but the business is being upturned, right? Like HBO has a ton of really good stuff to watch. Well, cable is a dying industry. Cable, right. But I mean, if they just existed as a streaming, but I mean, all the stream, the streaming services are getting killed too. Like they're, they're putting too much money into these big productions and they're, cause they're trying to build content and they have to have a mill of content and it's, it's producing wonderful things for viewers. I think this is a golden age of like just content that you can watch. I think we're, I think if, if nobody made any more shows tomorrow, I'd have stuff to watch for the next 20 years. And I would you mean never... as, if, as if there was some sort of writer's strike going on that prohibited yeah. shows from being made? There's so much content already. Like, I don't even need them to write it. I can't even catch up with all the stuff. I, have, I haven't even managed to watch the things from the last 10 years that have come out. There's, there's always somebody telling me about a show. And I'm thinking, oh, God, I, that's right. I meant to watch that. You know, there's just so much out there. And For the record, I, I do support the writer's track. We talked about this before over text. I don't really know a lot about it. The only things I heard, and it was from the New York Times, you'd think they would have been sympathetic. One of their beefs was that they don't get the rights to the things they, they write. So when they're done with a the job, 
they have to go get another job right away. They can't just sit there and collect royalties. And I was like, it's become a gig economy. Well, but that's not just a gig economy. That's that's kind of like how everybody lives, where like if you lose your job, you have to go get another job. You don't just. Well, get if you think about it, the nature of TV yeah. has also changed. So I mean, it used to be you would have a job with a twenty-four yeah. episode season, and yeah. you don't get that anymore. And right. there are all kinds of, like streaming rights. Do writers get a portion of the streaming rights? What happens if a studio decides it wants to use AI technology to write something? That's going to happen. We're going to get that. It, I honestly kind of despair about the future because of all this AI. I really think everybody's just going to be out of a job. Like there's just not going to be anything for anybody to do anymore. That's entirely because I think people like us, we're old people. We're probably somebody puts a novel in front of me and they say, This was written by an AI. I'm just not going to read it. I'm just going to hands down refuse to read it because for me, I need the other human being on the other end of the novel or the film or the TV show to connect with it. I, I need to know there's a persona that created it, if you know what I mean. It's just part of how I consume media. And I have a feeling that younger people, people that are born today, are just not going to feel that way. They're just going to cast that paradigm aside. They're not they, going to care. No, they're not going to care. They're going to say, I enjoy this thing, so I'm going to listen to it. And I don't care whether, you know, I'll, I'll listen to this song that, that pleases me, and I don't care if there's not a person that created it. That's just where I see the future going. Did anything about this film surprise you guys? You, you mentioned Blazing Saddles earlier. Do you think that 48 Hours could be made today? No, for a whole variety of reasons. They wouldn't make a movie like this uh, with this kind of a budget R-rated, which cuts out all the violence, all the nudity, all the sex. Mm -hmm. uh, I was going to say that th this is what I was talking about before with the gratuitous R-rated movie, is I think in those days the theory was that there was a market for the R-rated movie. There were people who, when they went to the theater, they were like, let's go see an R-rated movie. So there was an audience that needed an R-rated movie. Whereas today, I think people have just realized it, it, it just cuts down on your audience. You just want the broadest audience possible so you don't put anything that gives it an R, R, an R rating. How many R-rated movies are there Very coming few. out in the theaters right now, right? Horror flicks. Horror movies. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And my which my students go see, still go see, by the way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> horror By the way, and there's a reason for that. I think comedy and horror are still really fun to watch with an audience. Comedy is funnier when I'm watching it with 300 other people. And horror is funnier when I'm watching it with 300 other people. We went to go see Megan here in Manhattan, and it was a blast. Everybody's like shouting at the movie and stuff. It was a really good time. It would not have been fun to watch it at home. It would not have been the same experience at all. It would have been like watching a stand-up comedian on Zoom. It would not have been cool. I think those maybe will still survive in some level, like some kind of, because I, isn't it better to go to the movies with other people or is it, or am I just an old guy? I don't know whether young people share that with me, but. I think you're right. Comedies are just better with other people. I saw Team America World Police in a hugely packed theater, also drank some beers before I went to the movie, but I have never laughed that hard in my entire life. And I think if I watched that at home, I would have chuckled a couple of times. But yeah, I was, no, it was, I was crying. I was laughing so hard there were tears streaming down my face while I was watching that movie. And in hindsight, it probably wasn't that funny, but it was it's really pretty funny. funny. Did you have a different pick for 1992's Sexiest Man Alive? He was Sexiest Man Alive in 92. Oh. Okay. Ten years after. You know what he looks yeah. like in this movie? Add ten years, and then he was the Sexiest Man Alive. When didn't I think he, he wasn't he a, didn't he just finish like playing a bum? I was gonna say he played a bum in like, Prince of Tides, and that was when he was the sexiest man alive. I don't understand that. Like take the character from 48 hours, add 10 years, and make him a bum. 
Ooh, chef's kiss. So, Bill, once again, I've sidetracked your discussion of your biggest surprise. There were a few, which included uh, Tasha Yar right. from Star Trek we being on there. That. Chris, what was and, your biggest and, surprise? Uh, let's see. This is going to come out in Pride Month, right? So I guess it's uh, James Renmar. I, I thought he was really good as the bad guy in this. Yeah, uh, I thought he was great. I thought he was super, super like cool looking. Yeah, he's a bad guy. Him and actually David Patrick Kelly, I always thought, just had a great bad guy face. Did you guys uh, pick up on like the gay interpretation of of Billy and and Gantz? So you got a queer read on this? A little right. bit, yeah. You know, you got the the despite the, the prostitutes who at the police friend. station said he was not interested in them. They said he was more interested in the crime. That's true. I thought that was a uh, psychopath read. Like he was maybe I don't know on he... by violence and. But not some okay. You got the any... buff prisoner busting out of jail with the earring in the left ear in the early 1980s. Uh, no, it's they right wrestled here. with in the mud in the first scene of the movie. I don't know. I'm just I saying. never understood why Billy came up to him and he said, "Do you like Judy Garland movies?" I didn't understand that line. But yeah, they're they're, they're, they're friends of Dorothy for sure. Chris, your biggest surprise was, was just how good James name. Renmar was in this movie. I've, I've yeah. seen him in a lot yeah. of supporting roles and other things, and he's just been okay. What's, what's your number but, one thing that he's in? Uh, Dexter's dad. But I, like I said, I looked at his IMDb and it's just a bunch of stuff that he was. Oh doing. yeah. He's been, he's been in a ton and of he's, things. He's got a great face. He's got yeah. a great, he's one of those guys. He's kind of like the guy, the other cop that's friends with Nick Nolte in the, in the police station. The one that has that <laughs> missing chin. He's just yeah. got a great face. You're just like, it's not like I'm not, it, I mean, James Renmar, I think is actually a good looking man, but this other guy just has a great face for film. It's just like, what is what's going on in that? I want to look at that face. It's like looking at a train wreck. I guess it was extra surprising to me because he always kind of like honestly annoyed me in Dexter, and in this uh, it was like he's he's great. Why didn't he get more roles yeah. like this? Yeah, he he did he did. He was in a whole bunch of stuff. Look look at the filmography. It's just a million things just like this where he's not stealing the scene or anything like, but he's just there and he's a he's a working actor. There's a mm -hmm. lot of people. The the police chief, um, Frank McRae. Yes. It's just this working actor who's in a million things. I remember him from. Did you ever see the movie Batteries Not Included? Oh, oh, he was the the guy. Like yeah, the he's like the guy. superintendent, yeah, yeah. like the sort of slow witted superintendent who like fixes the machines and stuff. He, he's in a million things like that, and he's a great character actor. But just you know, you don't know that. I don't know that name off the top of my off the tip of my. Was it, wasn't like, the role though the the guy who's like the blowing up like captain or sergeant who's. Yeah. He's also the teacher in Red Dawn at the beginning. There's also a feminist read on this movie. Have you guys thought about that? How? Because there are no there are no female like proper characters, right? Right. Yeah. But, no, but, it's a total objectification of women. The entire film. It's not it's not just an objectification of women because the women hang they haunt these men, right? They're not actually present in the film. They're not like main characters, but everyone's obsessed with the women. They're going through all these like manly violent actions. And they're making bets about like, can I just get five minutes to go get a woman, you know, for a few minutes? And the guy's on the phone with his girlfriend. Why is she in the movie? Why why is the girlfriend on the movie? And it's it's just trying to show how women can haunt you when you're in the middle of these manly activities. It's almost like a war movie, like where you're getting the letter from your girlfriend that's breaking up with you. And no, uh, I kind of felt like they were just like these possessions or these these things that were like. Okay. But why put them in the film? Like, why are they in the reading production notes? She was in the movie because, uh, like, the majority of her scenes were cut, and this is what they had left. It seemed to me like Annette O'Toole was supposed to do more in the movie, right? Didn't it seem like there was supposed to be more of her. 
Yeah, they were cut. She, her her yeah. scenes went up on the floor. I could see that. I could see that because it seemed like there was no resolution on their story. The resolution is she just hangs up and walks away from him, and that's it. Fair. Well, she should have done. No, he thinks he's going to make it up to her the next day. He does claim that. Here's another fun question. They walk away with the money at the end of the movie. The deal is Nick Nolte's going to hold on to it and give it to Reggie when he gets out of jail, right? Yeah. Six he's months committing, He's yeah. committing a crime. Do you think that happens? Yes, I actually do think that's what you're supposed to. You're supposed to take from that 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 actually is, because it's a very reasonable deal, if you think about it. Just a couple thousand bucks for a car. Do you think Nick Nolte just walks with the money? If anything, if anything, from what you see the character do throughout the film, because he's got a lot of flaws, but in terms of his police work, I actually think he might hand in the money. I think you might so, be right. Spoiler alert, for another 48 hours, he totally keeps the money and it's oh, Reggie. Okay, all right. Reggie's motivation is to get the money back because okay. he won't. I mean, that may be what they did with the script in the second one, but I don't, that's not my read on what would happen. Oh, it's to totally my read. Who would trust Nick Nolte? He's such a, a total sleaze. He's yeah. a sleaze. But he does sleazy things in the interest of like his crappy job as a cop. Like he seems to be does dedicated he? to the job. He doesn't have any other motives. It's to keep his job. Well, yeah, to keep his job, but also to, to solve cases and things. That seems to be the most important thing to him. He's like trying you know, to shoot The most people. important thing to him is getting his gun back. Yeah, but he's already in trouble for that. He goes and tells everybody he lost the gun. Like He, he gets he's not called trying... by ordinance, and he's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to get it back to you by tomorrow. My biggest surprise of this movie was pretty simple. I thought this movie was funny. Eddie Murphy doesn't show up for 30 minutes at all. I thought yes. this movie was just a comedy movie, and it's just a, a straight action movie. It's Dirty Harry. It's not a lot. It's not very different from Dirty Harry. In fact, I just recently watched Dirty Harry for the first time, and it's just Clint Eastwood chasing these psychopaths across San Francisco, and I was like, well, this is Dirty Harry. And then Eddie, Eddie Murphy shows up, and there's a the part where he's singing Roxanne in the, tra in the jail. That's, that's comedy. That's pretty funny, but there's not a lot of that. That surprised me. I did not think Eddie Murphy's first movie was played this straight. In fact, I was wondering, we've seen like we've seen Adam Sandler, Tom Hanks, we've seen a couple of guys who were comedians, comedic actors, made the transition to drama later in their career. But has there ever been anybody who was a like a comedian who they plucked out of the midst of comedy off of SNL and then had them play kind of a straight not drama but not really funny part? I can't think of anything like that. It'd be like if I mean, Jim Carrey's yeah. first movie was he was just in Patriot Games as like one of the cops chasing the IRA. Like it, Oh, you're talking first movie specifically? First movie. First movie for a comedian. You don't you don't cast him as a as a comic actor. You know, you're just this like is, this is pretty well known as being like one of the greatest first movie debuts ever. I wouldn't disagree with it off the top of my head, but that's something I'd want to. That's something I'd want to engage with. I, I, Do you think there was more money in comedy for Eddie Murphy or in action? Comedy, 100%. The action things kind of fell on their faces a little bit. Well, there's there's some action in Beverly Hills. Well, I haven't seen Beverly Hills Cop. My impression is that there's some action. Golden Child? Golden Child is barely a movie. I've never Fair. seen it. It was not, it was not intended. No. You, you not think more Golden than... Child was intended to be a comedy? I, no, I'm joke, saying the opposite. It just... When you say comedy, do you mean like stand-up or do you mean comedy movies? Comedy movies. This guy in the 80s in the mid 80s cranked out huge movies i mean mm -hmm. beverly hills beverly hills cop biggest movie of 1984 i think not not just sixth place but the biggest movie of the whole year right biggest 
comedic movie of all time at the time. Also had an album, like I said. He had done Delirious in 83. And Delirious. And Delirious. And Raw came a a few years later. To me, that's three different media that he was dominating at the time. I mean, just not to mention TV, right? He was huge on SNL. So that's like four media. Raw was was Raw an HBO production? I think so. Yeah, that's that's my memory of it. But I, I never, I've never yeah. seen it. It's actually something I've considered doing for the show because I really enjoyed doing the big comedy albums. We did George Carlin, we did Bill Cosby. I think Raw would be amazing. So that was my biggest surprise. It really just the nature of this product was very surprising. So let's get into it. Uh, this was whose nomination? This was kind of a group effort. It was really Chris because Chris. It's really was Chris. Up. But when we have three people. I think we can just throw it out there and everybody votes because it's not a it's not a natural impasse. So yeah. why don't we go ahead and just everybody give their vote? And Bill, you're at the top of the Zoom. What's your vote? I want to vote now. Give us your reasons, counselor. Oh, I should start with my reasons and then... Yes, you should start with your reasons. You should have some drama. You should make us build up to whether or not you're going to vote for it. I don't see this as being any different from so many of the other films... That uh, came before it? 1980s. Sure, it came before it. it no, was- no. Are there, are there any films before this that this is not different from? I don't know about that. I can't, I, I can't say yes or no to that. What I will say is that I don't feel like it was vastly superior. I feel like it was another one. And I feel like, yeah, sure, it's got Eddie Murphy and Nick Nolte. Maybe to some degree it's intention without knowing these guys that Walter Mill's intentions of addressing some racial relations coming at coming into the early I saw I saw a quote that said Walter Hill claimed Walter Hill Walter Hill they didn't Sorry. beat the whole white black thing to death in the script and I'm like I disagree you didn't, you didn't? I, I thought I it was feel pretty like, damn bleak. I feel like you uh, did a lot with that I feel like it's kind of you know, like maybe you could have just let the black white thing speak for itself that's my sensibilities is this movie's 40 years old one of the things about Blazing Saddles was the racial stuff they talk about. And I think it's often it's because the guy's Jewish that wrote the movie. He could say these racial things and people would be kind of like, ooh, you know, they'd, they'd let him get away with it in a way. Yeah. And because it was a black guy and a Jewish guy writing the movie, they could talk about the black white thing in a way that you couldn't have gotten away with. And we don't have that here. That's interesting. Oh, I, don't know. I think they talked about it a fair amount. Were there any Jewish people that helped write the movie? I'd be surprised if there weren't. Are there any black guys that helped write the, write the movie? I mean, Eddie, uh, Murphy, Eddie Murphy does the Adlin, have the con- contribute, but no, 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 there's no official writing credit to anybody who's black. Yeah. It feels pretty white. Is it just me or does the movie feel? White? No, very much. so. Yeah. It, f- yeah, it feels it like white people wrote the movie. Um, it was also it's not just, dumb. It's not dumb. The whole, the, I think some of the conversation about racial language is kind of like cops using racial language is not super dumb. I, I, I think they're doing some things with that, but it's pretty white. It's a white perspective. You kind of feel like Eddie Murphy is like the one black guy in the room who's trying to keep the thing from being really, really white. Like he, he like he's sort of like, hey, maybe uh maybe the guy shouldn't be named Mickey Biggs. Maybe his name should be Reggie Hammond, which kind of sounds like a stereotypical black name, but like he changed the name of the character because he was like, Can we not have the guy be named what you guys named him? Like let it gives a little credibility to it. For that reason, thank you, Dave, for for cutting you off and generating a synopsis of my bad of my of my <laughs> my perspective on this. Uh, <laughs> Thanks for referring to me taking over as uh, creating a synopsis of your perspective, not just not just talking for you and stepping all over your face while you're trying to talk. That's very generous of you. 
in the heat of the night predates this by quite a bit the carol o'connor yeah, in the uh, heat of the night is from a really famous year in film history 1968 a whole bunch okay. of great movies from 68 that's i read a whole book about the black um, guy and the white guy together buddy movie right absolutely and they're and they're police yeah that's a really good point and that's only 14 years difference it feels like it feels like 50 years difference between these two generational movies. difference yeah generational <laughs> difference the dna of in the heat of the night is all over this movie and and this movie is a much stupider version of in the heat of the night it's dealing with and, some of the same issues but it's a much dumber version of it and yet way smarter than beverly hills cop i haven't seen beverly hills cop so i can't judge i really don't know so bill's voting against in summary okay chris yeah I, and this is gonna sound like i'm a terrible person following bill up but um I thought there was some pretty good writing in this movie. Not necessarily when it comes to gender or race relations, but are you just voting yes because of the racism, right? Because that's <laughs> that's where I'm leading. I mean, I'm just I just enjoyed. It's like I don't really like Chick Fil A sandwiches, but I love their stance on gay rights. Like I just oh, that's, that's funny. Whereas with Chris, it's totally the opposite. <laughs> No, I, I thought there was some legitimately clever writing here where, where you've got the redneck bar and the, you know, the African-American bar to the procedural portion of the movie, which we kind of didn't go over because it's a little boring. The whole way they tracked down the cash and how they got outsmarted by uh, the other gang members and ping pong, ping pong from place to place to place. And then well, the actual you know, plot, I guess, is what you, yeah. like the plot itself is pretty dull. Wait, wait, there's a plot. <laughs> like clear, clearly, clearly, the thing you paid your eight dollars for is to watch Nick Nolte and Eddie Murphy riff off each other. What I, the only thing I enjoy about the movie is that the rest of it is all kind of formulaic. Who was Nolte in before this? This is not his first movie, but it's pretty big for him. This is definitely his big thing where he became like a big movie star. It's not his first thing the way it is for Eddie Murphy, and he really just has consistently a whole lot of big films that he's in. So we've got a tie. It looks like Chris has voted for and Bill has voted again. I love this discussion because this dis it's a question of whether this is a film that I would ever just say like, hey, kid, you got to watch this movie, right? Or whether it's important in film history or whether it's just like, th those are the two things that are in opposition, right? It's like, is this a terrific, you know, I put my kids down and had them watch Red Dawn and they loved it. Right. And that's on some level, that's a classic. But is it an important film? Did it really like change film history? No, not particularly. It's just like a like a fun movie. This one, I didn't enjoy the experience of watching it all that much. I wasn't laughing out loud. I liked some of the actors, like you said, like James Rimmar, right? I enjoyed watching him. I enjoyed David Patrick Kelly. I like some of these guys from the early 80s. It's kind of cool seeing Eddie Murphy as a young dude. Tasha Yar, yeah, seeing her. In terms of the movie's importance, and I think this would be something that a person could write a really half-assed film thesis about, is this really the first buddy cop movie? And on some level, I can't think of anything exactly like it before. And to me, this movie, you don't get Lethal Weapon without this movie. Lethal Weapon combines humor and buddy cop and legit action, like pretty violent hardcore action into a great movie that i love and so i'm thinking i'm i'm like you just don't get that without this and it's eddie murphy's first movie james horner did the soundtrack does james horner have any soundtracks before this so i i think if we're i think if we're splitting those two questions up is this a great movie i'd go back and watch i don't really think so it's not it's not like it's not all that enjoyable i would say 
watch Dirty Harry for the action stuff, and then watch maybe Beverly Hills Cop for the comedy stuff and skip this one. But is this movie important because of the Eddie Murphy thing and because of uh, the buddy cop thing? Uh, it's a pretty important movie, so I don't know, man. This is the question of the philosophy of the classic. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Can you guys contribute to the debate that I'm talking about, about what a classic is? I can, guys- but I first want to point out that you just recommended people watch a movie you yourself have not seen. That's right. I'm assuming Beverly Hills Cop must be funnier, right? It's got to be funnier. It is funny. Got to it's be funnier, funnier, but it's also dumber. I mean, isn't comedy always a little bit dumber than something that's not funny? Isn't that? Y- you, you definitely have to simplify things. Maybe sometimes really? you could have an elevator. You can't have like an, in, an intellectual comedy. comedy? Uh, I would say it's a it's a whole other order of mag- magnitude magnitude difficulty to do so. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think I think a comedy that was truly that had truly earned any kind of intellectual conversation would be one of the best comedies of all time kind of thing. Like it would be sublime. I would say this is not a classic. I'm going to vote against it. I'm only okay. on the side of Bill because I just didn't enjoy the film watching experience that much. And yeah. I think if we're going to put together a little canon, I mean, is it important in the history of film? I think it kind of is. Is the first book where somebody used a word the most important thing, or is the experience of reading the book important? I think the experience of reading the book is a little more important. So I didn't love watching this one. I wasn't on the edge of my seat watching it. I didn't hate it. It's good. It's a, it's a good it's a good movie. Um, I'm going to go ahead and vote against it. But I think we can toast the buddy cop yeah, we can toast. Not having seen it, I think we can toast Beverly Hills Cop. Beverly Hills Cop, hands down, better movie than this one. <laughs> Even though neither Chris or I has seen it, and Bill hasn't seen it. I've since. seen it. Oh, you have. Oh, you yes. have seen it. Have you seen? Beverly oh, absolutely. Hills? I watched it right after watching this. I think we're ready to end this by saying that Toasting the Classics is not certifying this one a classic. We're not raising. We're going to raise our glasses because it's fun to raise our glasses, I think. And I will toast you, gentlemen, and I thank you very much for joining me on this evening to do another podcast episode. But we are not certifying this with the Toasting the Classics brand. I, I I would recommend... I would recommend my audience go see the far superior film, Beverly Hills Cop. Sight completely unseen... By the way, I would recommend that my audience go watch Prince of Tides. Nick Nolte's much better in that. I've not I've seen, never seen it. Tides. I've never seen it, but I'm just, I'm just assuming. I'm assuming it must be better. Anyway, thanks for joining me again, guys, uh, for the drinking game edition of Toasting the Classics. I, this is Dave MacArthur signing off with Bill Hodges and Chris Craig. Thank you. Good night, everybody. Peace out. That's it for episode 78 of Toasting the Classics. For those playing along at home. Stay tuned to find out what we'll be drinking when we talk about 1977 Best Picture Annie Hall. If you'd like to get in touch, please send us an email at toastingtheclassics at gmail.com. Send us show ideas, comments, complaints, and let us know your pick for Eddie Murphy's best movie. Check out my blog at theattractivenuisance.com and follow us on Twitter at @attractivenuisance. Our music was written by Michelle MacArthur. See you next time on Toasting the Classics.